Hello, everyone. We have a treat for you today. This is somebody that Arthi and I have been fans of for quite a while. Uh, we've read all of his books. We obsess over everything he does. Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, you've seen his a movie, The Martian, based on his book on the big screen. Uh, probably one of the most influential voices and uh, writers in sci-fi around today. The one, the only Andy Ward. Andy, this is yes. such a delight. And I'm going to say up front, we want to science the shit out of this. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Thanks. We've always, we've always, always wanted to use that line. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's great that you're here. We're such big fans. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I did not write that line. Um, it's associated with me because it's associated with the Martian, but mm-hmm. I, that line is not in the book. It's mm-hmm. only in the I know, film. I know. Yeah. It's so, only in the film. It's only yeah, in the, so, it's so in the it's trailer. Drew Goddard, the illustrious, talented Drew Goddard came up with that line. You know, oh. it's a little bit like elementary, my dear Watson, actually not being canonically in any of the Conan Doyle books, but now being right. a reference to. I'm but, also or, one of those uh, really annoying people who would like look at the movie and be, that was not in the book. This is not in the right. book. And I would just like, like to nitpick and look the diffs between the movie yeah, and the book. Yeah, there's a bunch of those. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and uh, in the trailer, the trailer released a year or so before the movie came out and uh when the trailer came out and you know matt damon says this and i was like but that's not in the book why did he say that that makes no sense Um, but yeah well they often have to take some liberties it's true it's true Uh, they they did a great job i was really happy with the film Uh, okay so we want to get to that andy you know you know when i first found your work many years ago and i was looking you up and you know i was like andy is one of us Right. Uh, and, uh, uh, and in fact, I've been doing this a lot longer than we have. So uh, could you talk to us about your backstory? Right. Uh, because you, you before you were a writer, you were an engineer, a programmer. And talk to us just about your life history and how you got into writing, because it's super fascinating. <laughs> well, um, I was born at a very early age. Yeah. <laughs> Same joke. I know. I know. I'm a dad now. I have a. I, my my wife and I had a baby a year and a half ago. He's 18 Congrats. months old. So now I yeah. now I get to use dad jokes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. I guess uh, my life trajectory was. Yeah, ever since I was a tween, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Like I, I always wanted to be a writer. I grew up with uh, with actually reading my dad's science fiction collection. So. He never threw away a book. So he had this huge bookshelf full of all these um, classic science fiction things by Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, um, Isaac Asimov. And I mean, I was reading the original books, the ones he bought in the 1950s and 60s, the yellowed pages, and they kind of smell funny. And there's an ad for cigarettes in the middle. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) it's funny because they figure... 15-year-olds are going to be reading this, and that's our target market for cigarettes back in the 1950s. So anyway, um, I grew up reading those, so that's the kind of science fiction that I I came to love. Uh, I I wrote short stories and other stuff like that, but when the time came to uh, pick an actual career, as I was like going to college, I was 18 years old, I kind of went like, well, I'd love to be a writer, but also I want to... um, uh, there, there's like, I'm getting into computers. I'd gotten into computer programming. I was doing it for actually a few years at a national lab while I was in high school. That's kind of a different story, but um, it sounds cooler than it is. It sounds like I'm some phenom child that they brought into a secret government facility where in fact, I was just an ordinary dorky child who they brought into a secret government facility. But um, that's where I learned to program computers 
and I liked it. And so when it was time to go to college, I was like, mm, do I want to try to be a writer professionally or do I want to be an engineer? And I decided I like regular meals. So I went for being an engineer and I uh, went to college for about four years, uh, ran out of money and then just went into the industry. At this point, it's around 1994. And if you like knew how to turn a computer on, you could get a decent paying engineering job because <laughs> we were just so much more in demand than we were in supply. So I, I worked for various companies. I mean, I, I, I somewhat famously, I worked for uh, Blizzard Entertainment for a while. I was one of the programmers on Warcraft 2. And then, uh, yeah, I was in the industry for about 25 years, but the whole time I always wanted to write. So let's see, now moving forward where it's about 1999, I was working for America Online mm -hmm. and they merged with Netscape. Kind of gives you the date, <laughs> gives you a feeling for how long ago that was. And um, when they merged with Netscape, they laid off a whole bunch of people, including me. So I ended up with some severance and some stock options that I sold, and I had enough money to last several years without having to work. So I took that time and took a sabbatical, which means didn't get another job. And um, I spent that time writing a book, and that book was called Theft of Pride, and it sucked. Um, that was actually my second book. My first book was called The Observer, and I wrote that while I was in college. These are full-length novels. Um, and uh, The Observer sucked really bad. I knew, I mean, that was like literally the first novel that I'd ever written. I'd written a jillion short, short stories and stuff, but this was my first novel. And it was, it was pretty terrible. And I, I mean, I knew it was terrible. Uh, the Theft of Pride was much better, um, and it, except for it was still bad, although I didn't know it was bad. So I spent three years writing and then trying to get published, um, Theft of Pride. And um, I had the same tale of woe that every author encounters, which is no one's interested, can't get an agent, um, just couldn't get any traction. So after three years, I went back into the software industry. And this wasn't a sad Charlie Brown music situation. I, I like being a software engineer. I like programming computers. I, I, it's fun. Uh, and I'm good at it, mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, as you know, later in my career when I had decades of experience, right? Um, and so I just did that and I would write on the side. As the internet became more and more of a thing, I had the ability to acquire an audience. And so I was writing short stories and serials on my website and just posting them for free. I had a mailing list of regular readers. You could just sign up for my mailing mm -hmm. list and I'd email you when there was a new story posted. And uh, yeah, I, I think I accumulated about 3,000 regular readers, which sounds impressive until you until I tell you that it took me 10 years mm -hmm. to do that. Like 10 years of just slowly adding mm -hmm. content to my site, goofing off. So um, anyway, one of the serials that I was writing was The Martian. And so I was posting it to my website about a chapter every month to six weeks. Um, and uh, I would post the chapter. People would give me feedback. Sometimes I'd make changes based on their uh, feedback. Um, my my 3,000 readers were hardcore dorks, right? Um, like these are the nerds of the nerds, right? And so that's who I was writing The Martian for. I figured this is my, I wasn't thinking of it as a mainstream appeal. In fact, at this point, I had given up on ever being any sort of actual published author. I was like, okay, these are the hardcore nerds who are actually reading what I'm writing. So I'm going to write a book for the hardcore nerds. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write a book that actually details the math on like everything that I do. I still don't understand how a book that is basically a whole bunch of algebra word problems ended up becoming a bestseller. But 
anyway, so I was working on that, and I had like 3,000 fact checkers, right? I mean, they would tell you right away when something gets wrong. I mean, nothing in the world a nerd likes more than finding a mistake. Um, I know. I, I do it all the time. I love it. And um, so uh, time went by. I released chapters, and then I finished. And then I started working on my next stuff, and I got emails from people saying, hey, I really love The Martian, but your site is awful, and I hate reading things on it, which is true because my website was just hand like typed into notepad mm -hmm. i made the html code myself it was just the you know blue hyperlinks white background black text the soviet tractor factory oh. equivalent of oh, a website, love right? that aesthetic by the way it's so retro <laughs> so love that aesthetic. Yeah, yeah can't be beat i mean like there are there are myspace pages made by people who were 14 at the time that are like way nicer than my website right so um then people said like hey i want to read it on an e-reader so i made an e-reader version of it and posted that and then other people are like i don't know how to download a thing and put it on my e-reader so i figured out how to um, self-publish through amazon which is really easy and then once it, i set the price to the minimum that amazon allows which is 99 cents and then from there it really took off it was kind of lightning in a bottle um, it started selling very well. It got a lot of high ratings. It got to the bestsellers in science fiction and then in all of Kindle. That's when I ended up with an agent and a book yeah. deal and then the film deal and all this stuff happened really quickly. Yeah. Um, the book deal and film deal came together four days apart. Wow. Okay. Wait, walk us walk us through that, right? Because like you have a small audience. You, you still have your regular full-time job as a developer. Yep. And then... Yep. You, things start happening, right? You get a book deal, which is a you know for folks who are not aspiring writers, it's quite it's the, huge. It's huge, and yeah. then it's huge. It was like the culmination. It's like the biggest fantasy I'd ever had in my mm -hmm, life. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was like what I'd been dreaming about since I was twelve, and like random out. I, actually, what happened was um, an agent contacted me and said, "Hey, do you have an agent? Because I think you could sell The Martian as a print deal, as a print book." And I said, "Like, uh, no, I don't." And he's like, okay, uh, I'd love to be your agent. He's still my agent to this day. Oh, nice. um, great guy named David Fugate. Um, and then um, Random House uh, expressed an interest in The Martian. And I'm like, well, talk to my agent. And, and then uh, <laughs> so he negotiated that deal. And then at the same time, uh, 20th Century Fox wanted the film rights. Um, to be fair, that at the time, everybody told me, don't get excited about that mm -hmm. yeah. um anything that's selling even remotely well anything that's making even a ripple in the literary world film studios will come secure the film rights um they do it through an option process which for any of your listeners that don't understand how that works it's when they buy the film rights from you for a book um they give you a bunch of money but what they don't want to do that for every book because they, they, they want to secure the rights, but they mm -hmm. don't want to pay that much money for every book. Mm -hmm. So they have the concept of an option, which means you work at a contract where, where they will buy your book for a big pile of money, et cetera, et cetera, like that. But that contract is not enacted. Mm -hmm. It is over there. Mm -hmm. And then you make a separate contract that says, okay, for the next 18 months, you're not allowed to sell the film rights to anyone but us. Right. We can activate this contract. Yeah, you guys, you guys are nodding your head because you know all this, but just for the benefit of your readers, no, no, uh, listeners, rather. Um, yeah, so there's a separate contract that says we, the studio, can activate the right. main contract anytime we want within the next 18 months. And most of the times that does not get activated. 
Correct. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that doesn't happen. And then the option expires after 18 months, 12 months, whatever you negotiated. But they give you a small amount of money to go along with the option. It'll mm-hmm. be in the like, you know, like ten thousand to twenty thousand dollar range, mm. which I say that like, oh, this is chump change. But no, you know, it's like something, you know, <laughs> if you're if you're pulling down ten thousand dollars for eighteen months of work, you're that's not a lot of money. Right? Yeah. 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 So um yeah, they'll they if they don't exercise the option, then the rights devolve back to you and you can go sell them to somebody else and you get to keep that option money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and usually what happens is they don't exercise it. They don't, you know, do the contract, but oftentimes they just, they want to hang on to the rights. So let's say, Hey, you want to renew this contract? We'll just like tack another 18 months on, give you another 10, 20,000 bucks, whatever, you know? And there are actually a lot of authors out there who are kind of middlingly successful who they're not like Stephen King where mm-hmm. any book he makes can pretty much, he can have it be a movie if he wants, right. but they're also not complete nobodies. And so there's a lot of writers out there who film studios want to make sure they secure all of the rights to all of their books. Mm-hmm. And they have like a, a back catalog of like 20 books or so that they've written over their mm-hmm. career. And so that means that every year and a half or so, 20 books cycle through right. this um, right. option cycle. So then you can literally just live off of that. Yeah. You know? now, now, there is a somewhat al- magic alchemy process where there is a famous, in your case, actor or a director or somebody, something happens and it goes from an option to, oh, this is now going to become if a somebody, thing. We're, we're somebody puts this. their hand up and then everything just like kind of sort of falls into place. How does it work? Uh, it's weird because it's not what you think. It's not like there's this moment where you pop the champagne because this is a green lighted project. <laughs> it's just more of a, the studio just keeps moving closer and closer and closer to making it a reality. Yeah. So for The Martian, it started off with uh, Drew Goddard took an interest in writing the screenplay and directing it. Mm-hmm. So he talked to me a bit. He was working on that. But still, it's a very low probability thing. Fox, you know, 20th Century Fox would have to fund it, all, yada, yada, yada. And then they started looking, but Drew wrote a kick-ass screenplay. And so then uh, they started looking for a lead mm-hmm. and they were considering various options for who could play the lead. And then then that's, that's when things started to really happen because Matt Damon took an interest in it. Do you know how that happened? Like what did he- They just- sent it out. They sent the screenplay out to like actors- they, you know, they send them to, it's, it's just the normal system in Hollywood. They say like, here's a screenplay. Here's a list of like yeah. pie in the sky list of actors that we would like to play the lead. Let's send the screenplay to their agents. See what happens. By the way, I would and, say the Martian is so perfect for, to be made into a movie, especially in a way that actors love because yeah. it is focused on a solo character going through a hardship. You know, yeah. it has all the things that if you're a leading actor you're like this is like you know meat yeah like, this is something i can sink my teeth and it's, it's also like man versus nature you know yeah. it's 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 a it's i can see why actors would be excited about a story well, like this well i think any actor honestly any actor is excited by the idea of like 75 percent of the screen time is just him alone <laughs> on the screen like so uh anyway matt damon expressed an interest and that made the studio take more interest but it didn't mean it was like an automatic or anything like that. And then we lost Drew because he went to work on a Spider-Man movie. And so then we, so we went from having a director and no lead to having a lead and no director, but having Matt Damon does help, you know, yeah. 
secure a director. And then we got Ridley Scott, right? Okay. So once we had Ridley Scott and Matt Damon, then things started really falling into place. Everyone kind of wanted to be a part of it. We got this incredible cast um, that really no one should be able to afford, but a lot of them just did it for less than they're worth just because they kind of wanted to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. It was very cool. Um, and yeah, but even then, it's still not a guarantee until like, you know, Linda is talking to the producer and he's like, well, they're building sets, uh, you know, in Budapest right now, which is where it was shot. And I'm like, okay, does that mean it's green lighted? He's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you never really know. I mean, it's likely. And I'm like, okay. I feel but, like this um, is a bit like us uh, buying our first house when we bought our first <laughs> house. You know, we we moved from India to here. We completely alien to the whole concept. And finally, like we'd saved up enough money and we ended up like buying this house. And at some point we, we signed all these papers and then like the agent called and said, oh, you have to come sign more papers. Oh, you need to like do this other thing. Oh, but what about insurance? And there was like these weeks and weeks and weeks of stuff. And then we were like, do we have it? Is it like, can yeah. we celebrate? Like, yeah. are we getting keys? They're like, well, you know, like, yeah, sure. You'll get the keys. Uh, it's like behind this thing in the lockbox. And you're like, when do we get to know? Is it, is it not a Boolean state from like not yeah. having a house <laughs> to like owning a house? And they're like, well, well, you know. For the house, it's when the sellers sign. Right, you know? right. It's when they, I mean, it, it, but in the movie, the studio can do, uh, studios can and often do spend enormous amounts of money preparing preparing and laying the groundwork for a film and then they change their mind like that right. can happen right. mm-hmm. wow so my my the producer not my producer i'm his writer whatever um the producer told me uh, aditya sood is his name in fact he's an, another indian um uh Which is very, he, i actually did look him up uh last night uh when mm-hmm. was, no i actually want to talk to you about this part of the process because the interaction between the writer of the source material and the production, there's a whole bunch of variety, right? There are some folks, mm-hmm. you know, who are like, look, I threw it over the wall. I have no input. Sometimes they hate it, but they're like contractually obliged to say I like it. But mm-hmm. you actually had some level of like involvement input into the process too. Sure. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but just saying like, you, to, still still answering your earlier yeah. question yeah. where you said, you know, at what point did this become a reality? Um, you know, I talked to Aditya and he was like, well, um, probably the time that you can really consider this to be a go is after they have the first day of shooting in the can, which means they have filmed a scene, like they filmed scenes, which means they have the entire crew on location, the <laughs> talent, the director, everybody on nice. location, and they've shot it. And now what's really relevant about that is once they do that first day of shooting, it activates all of those big contracts. Like it activates, like once they do one day of shooting, they have to pay Matt Damon the entire contract amount they owe him. If they want to cancel the movie, that's fine. They still have to pay Matt Damon all the money, you know, and, and the same with Ridley Scott and all the other big earners. And so at that point, once they start shooting, it becomes like, even if they wished they hadn't started, it's cheaper for them to make the film and mm. just, try to see how much money you can make then you know and and that was also by the way that is like literally they didn't activate my contract you know to to secure the film rights until the day they started shooting right that's when they activated my contract and and you know, That's so crazy. The, the way the way that whole world works of like full of contracts, it's just funny math to me. Like none of that makes any sense, but kind of sort of makes sense where you, well, you shoot a studios of- like flexibility. They like to be able to say like, okay, you know, we can't, 
you know, there's a limited number of big name directors and big name stars out there. And we can't just make, you know, yeah. 700 movies a year, you know, but we can kind of start 700 movies and see which one of them are kind of, which ones are kind of looking good and then mm-hmm. trim the fat and then kind of narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down. And so, uh, yeah, studios like having options right up to the last second. <laughs> no, like there was, wasn't there, uh, what was it? The, um, the movie, uh, the bat, bat woman, bat girl, I think bat girl bat or bat woman. Uh, yeah, the one that got, I know what you're talking about, the one that got yeah. canceled and it totally yeah, kind of, they spent something like $90 million on that film and then they decided, eh, we're not liking this. We're not going to release it in any form. Yeah, yeah Batman, And to yeah. which a lot of people are like, wait a minute, don't you at least, I mean, even if you think it's going to tank. Yes. Even if it makes like, just put know, it, it out there. Just put it out there, you yeah. know, even if it's like, okay, you spent $90 million and maybe it eats Maybe it eats crap at the box office, and you yeah. make ten million dollars. Yeah. That's ten million more than you would have had, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was like, like straight to DVD, straight to Netflix. I don't care. Just put it out it's there. Something, yeah. right? Yeah. But actually, it turns out that, like, I mean, studios spend almost as much money on marketing as they do on the film. Right. So from their studio bottom line, they're like, "Well, we've spent ninety million bucks on it. Even a minimal marketing campaign would mean we're spending tens of millions of dollars more." And we don't think we're going to make that much on the movie. We mm-hmm. so they they thought basically stopping now is the cheapest option. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I, I want to yeah. I want to talk about about you at this moment so because you have this baby. It's been online. It has this fan base. All of a sudden, you have Matt freaking Damon shooting it. I know. <laughs> uh, what was your emotional state? How involved did you want to be? How was that moment like for you? Well, when I found out all that, I had to like lay down. Like, so bear in mind, like at this time, I was still an engineer. I was in my cubicle fixing bugs and stuff and then periodically running off to a conference room to take a call about my movie deal and then back to fixing bugs, you know? Did your peers know at the office? Like, did they? Yeah, yeah. Everybody at the office knew what was going on. Everybody was cheering me on. I I loved where I worked. The last, the last engineering job I I worked at was at a place called Mobile Iron. And uh, what we did there was we made um, security software for mobile devices. I mean, I could go into depth about what we do, but it would put everybody to sleep. The point is it's, it's basically a, a, yeah. a b2b company mm-hmm. it, it's like businesses we've use used this. mobile iron no, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and um while the software is boring to the layman it was interesting stuff to write it has to do with all these security protocols and stuff like that uh the team i was on was all really awesome people that i enjoyed mm-hmm. working with i liked my managers i was the i was the um i was the tech i was the tech lead on it and i just really enjoyed my job so i just kind of didn't quit so I kept working there, <laughs> even though, like, they were filming the movie. Like, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I left, I, I finally left Mobile Iron because I got another book deal to write another book, and mm. I had, like, a year to do it. And so I had to go full-time on the writing. Right. And that is the only reason I left Mobile Iron. Yeah, I can, and- I can totally imagine this picture, which is, like, somebody's like, Andy, have you fixed that book? And he's like... Don't talk to me. I have Matt Damon playing my book. Like, don't talk to yeah. me like that. No, it's nothing like that. When I was at work, I was all about work. But people but, were very excited. And they were so positive. They were all just cheering me on. They were so... But the, when the film came out, yeah. Um, by the time the film came out, I had already left the company and stuff like that. But the company had like... Like the whole company went to the Aww. theater. Oh, that's, that's so nice. Cool. They invited me. So, you know, I went with them. And so we all went to the theater together to watch it. 
That's cool. That's awesome. Um, it was awesome. Did, but, did yeah, things sorry. change for you on like, you know, did, did you start getting invited to cool Hollywood parties? Like what happened? Like what was the, what, do you see any change over time or like pretty much overnight? <laughs> uh, not, I mean, not the social event mm-hmm. yeah. kind of stuff. Like I'm not part of the Hollywood scene. <laughs> but I mean, I ended up with lots of meetings with lots of like producers and stuff and say, hey, let's talk about any other ideas you have and, and stuff like that. So I, I, I have the ability to get in the door right. and pitch ideas. Right. Um, and I have pitched many and none of them have been picked up. So there's no, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's no, there's no automatics. You've uh, got your idea has to be something they think is good. They're not going to give it to you based on sheer. Well, I mean, maybe if I was like Stephen King or something, but not, not, not if I'm me. I got to come up with something that makes them interested. I did get as far as a pilot getting shot for a CBS. I pitched a show that was um, just going to be called Mission Control. Right. And it was about the lives of the flight controllers at, at Mission Control. Now, there's a space station and stuff like that. But the main characters are the mm-hmm. flight controllers. And it's about the stuff they do. And it, I wanted it to be kind of a mix between like House and the West Wing. I want it to be like, ooh, this is a big, famous, powerful government agency. You're seeing what's going on in these important people. And then at the same time, every every episode would have some scientific mystery of something that's going wrong on the station that these guys need to fix. Oh, wow. And that's I thought awesome. that would be really cool. And we shot a pilot. And I think the pilot was pretty good. But CBS just decided against it. You know, speaking of, uh, sorry, just one segue here. Um, speaking of, you know, government agencies, my one of my favorite characters is Eva Strat. I feel like she's... Ah, just as much yeah. a hero of the story, yeah, you know, for Project Hail Mary. Just the uh, just yeah. the amount of um, secret authority and power that yeah. she had was just very cool. Like you would not Thanks. expect that to be like a government person. She's normally. such a uh, a fun character to write, and because I think we've all had that fantasy where wouldn't it be nice if you could just say, "Oh, all that bureaucratic red tape." No, exactly. No, exactly. we're not doing it that way. We're doing it this way. Yeah. because so awesome. I said so. Yeah. Well, wouldn't that be awesome? And Ava Strat can do that. Yeah, it uh, does. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I because I want to get to Project Hail Mary, who's a character from, and Artemis and Jack. Um, I want to touch about because one fascinating thing for about you is your life as a programmer and your life as a writer. Now, one level, obviously, a lot of your books are so technical, you know, so nerdy in so many details, and that makes sense. But uh, Brandon Sanderson once said that when he started writing, he had to stop coding because he was kind of itching the same parts of his brain of problem solving. Do you think being a coder helps you in some ways oh, yeah. to be a writer? Oh, yeah. Lots of ways, actually. So first off, um, it, it helps me because, uh, well, my books are all very problem solving based. So my books are the books that a software engineer would write. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, so that that helps a lot. Um, also, my books are so intensely scientific that I end up often writing software to help me solve the problems, which is also cool. Um, but the way I would say that it helps me the most is that um, I've I've had my editor and agent and lots of people in the industry, also in Hollywood, uh, when I'm writing for them, uh, just tell me that I'm very, very easy to work with. Um and that comes from a software background where yeah. I'm used to spending a lot of time on a project, turning it over, and then getting told a thousand things that are wrong with it. In <laughs> other words, writing software and then getting bug reports, <laughs> right? So I already have that mentality. I turn over a book to my editor, and the editor comes back and says, here's a hundred things that are wrong. And I'm like, okay, I'll start fixing them. 
I guess being an engineer makes you humble. It right. is what it does. It makes you humble about the work that you're working on. You'll right. be proud of it and you'll work really hard on it. And you wouldn't like someone dissing think, it too much. Yeah. But in the end, you also acknowledge that like, you know, it, it, you know, you, you got to go through a lot of revisions before it's ready to ship. And so that mentality has been built into me for, you know, two and a half decades of being a software engineer. So it kind of slotted in really nicely in the uh, literary world. That's cool. I think it also makes you, uh, now that you mention it, it also makes you collaborative. Like, you know, you you can't ship a pretty big piece of software by yourself. You kind right. of have to work together with the team. And I think the more, you know, you explain this, it looks like the publishing world, the the world of rights and everything else is also fairly collaborative. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, of course, that's kind of how I view the world because that's how my profession mm -hmm. was leading right. up to it. Right. Um, a lot of writers are not nearly so cooperative and a lot of writers are much better than me. And maybe it's good that they're not cooperative because they're like, no, you're not going to talk me out of this. Mm -hmm. This is a really good idea. And then it turns out they're right. You know, yeah. um, right. the only thing I made, <laughs> the only place where I put my little foot down uh, on the uh, editing process of the Martian was my, my, um, there's a scene in the Martian, well, in the book. Where a Mark, where, where they say, "Hey, Mark, be careful what you say. Everything you type is being broadcast live." And he says, "Look, a pair of boobs." Yeah. And then he does like a little ASCII art, yeah. like of boobs, right? Yeah. And my editor said, "Like that is, I mean, I know Mark is like a funny guy and stuff yeah. like that, but my editor's like, that's pretty puerile humor. I mean, that's pretty lowbrow. I think you should take it out." And I'm like, "No." That stays. <laughs> that was the only time I ever just straight up like I, I like like overrode. I said like, no, I'll, I'll make all the other changes you want. But, but that it's stays. great. And people still, they they just they talk about that line and how funny they thought it was, and they have me write it a lot. Like when I'm signing books, they say, "Oh, right, look, I look a pair of boobs," and then do the ASCII art thing. And I'm like, "All right, I'll draw boobs on your book if that's what you whatever want. works." Whatever but works. It's so great because um. That kind of reminds us that you're one of us, you know, like this is kind one of the, of <laughs> it's like the, the nerd humor. Um, yeah. it, it's funny and it's it's just like, it makes you feel, oh, he gets us kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's yeah. really cool. Now, uh, earlier, I, I don't want to have a stack overflow. So earlier you had <laughs> asked me about how much influence and input I had on the film. Yeah. So I'll answer that. The answer is uh, on paper, none. Like I had no authority whatsoever. Once they bought the rights, they could do whatever they wanted with it, change anything they wanted. I had no say at all. Um, I I didn't even have a con I didn't even have any contractual obligations to say nice things about the film. I, I they're just like see, ya. they could have, but they didn't. They chose to involve me. Right. Drew talked to me a lot when he was working on the screenplay because he wanted to be as true to the book as possible. And then Ridley decided that i mean you know he's a genius director so he's like all right what are the core what, what what are the important things about this book that matter that need to come across in the film and one of them he said was scientific accuracy mm -hmm. that's a thing that's one of the pillars that this book is built on mm -hmm. so we're going to make sure that works in the film too and so periodically i would get questions from wrigley about like you know in places where they deviated from what happens in the book he would say like okay you would kind of double I, I i served almost as a science or technical advisor nice in a roundabout way like I'll, I'll give you a tangible example they said like well we want to show mark watney transferring hydrazine from mm -hmm. one container to another can he just 
pour it like one bucket into another when he's out on the surface of Mars. And I said, no, it's highly volatile. It would in Mars's atmosphere, it would just boil off. And Meridia's like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> and that was the last I heard of him on that. But if you watch the film, you see the way Mark transfers the hydrazine is he hooks up a pressure hose mm-hmm. that goes to another container and out while he's out on the surface yeah, of Mars. They took so your feedback. Uh, yeah. I, I've seen sometimes <laughs> sometimes writers go once they've seen their creation on the big screen to see, oh wait, I've I can see why this works and why somebody else did it my way, and then it changes the future versions of their work right um you know even if sometimes for example jk rowling would say you know those characters have been living in here for a long time but sometimes watching the movies she now can adapt and be like oh i can see how different we can has anything about the martian made you go like huh i see how they did that that's interesting and has that shaped you as a writer after um well they stayed really true to the book i mean they they did not deviate much at all. Mm-hmm. And the only places where they deviated were mostly omissions. Like, mm-hmm. he had a lot more problems while he was on Mars in the book than he did in the film. Because if, if he didn't do that, the film would be like six hours long, right? So, um, yeah, I don't... I mean, the only thing is, like, in my mind, I imagine Mark Watney as being sort of a dorky, scrawny guy. Not this really good-looking, you know, Matt Damon. <laughs> And the same for Commander uh, Lewis. I imagined her as being um, older, like maybe in her late fifties, right. kind of thing. Because she's the commander of a mission to Mars. You don't mm-hmm. you don't get that kind of post if you're like young, right? And and I had established that she was a um, a naval commander before that. Like so, she had a long Navy career and everything. So in my mind, I actually pictured Jane Lynch as oh. Commander Lewis. Like this no-nonsense, white-haired, short-cropped, but still healthy-looking, fit, like kick-your-ass, like, you know, leader. That's good casting. And now, don't get me wrong, Jessica Chastain nailed the role. She did fantastic. But I definitely did not imagine someone as attractive as Jessica Chastain (laughs) (laughs) when I thought of Commander Lewis. Uh, 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 Okay, Uh, we want to talk to you about Project Hail Mary, which, by the way, in my mind... As amazing as Martian is, is actually, you know, even better and, you know, your best work to date. And I want to ask you this in a very particular way because uh, you're going to dig into Project Hail Mary, but I would love for you to talk to us about the origin and the process of how such a book came about. Because when I look at Project Hail Mary, there are so many things going on in there. There is a first contact story. There is a romance, a buddy movie, a a buddy story. Romance, yeah. Romance (laughs) uh, happening uh, for sure. Uh, there's also a flawed character, but not flawed enough that the the readers, you know, get turned off. And obviously, yeah, there's I, a bunch of science. That lesson. So there's a bunch <laughs> of stuff, but maybe talk to us through the ideas that come together where in your head in the book. So talk to us about the whole process of how Project Hail Mary came to be. Well, um, although it, the final product looks pretty smooth, Project Hail Mary is a bunch of different unrelated story ideas that I glued together. Um, I had it in mind for a while about the idea of a guy waking up with amnesia aboard a spaceship. I didn't have anything beyond that, but I thought that's kind of cool. And like working out that you're on a spaceship that's constantly thrusting, or you'd be like, wait a minute, and the thrusters are you, you just even figuring out that you're aboard a spaceship would be interesting. Um, I also had an idea for uh, for a long time I'd wanted to do like, hey, what if we had a mass conversion fuel, something that turns matter into light and use that as propellant, which is like you know, would be like a, an incredibly efficient form of fuel in terms of specific impulse, which mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, the tyranny of the rocket equation is what the 
what uh, what that helps overcome, which is just basically the 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 more accelerating you want to do in space, the exponentially more fuel mass it takes. Mm -hmm. But if the fuel is absurdly efficient, like you're converting it into light, then it you know that it's still exponential, but it's a much shallower curve. Right. Um, so that was an interesting thing, and of course, like any science fiction author worth his salt, I've always wanted to do a first contact story. So <clears throat> um, after The Martian, I got uh, another book contract and I was going to work on this book called Zhek, Z-H-E-K. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Zhek, I was sure, I was convinced was going to be like my magnum opus. I was sure this was going to be what I'm <laughs> known for. Like The Martian, like Zhek was going to be my Lord of the Rings and The Martian was going to be kind of my hobbit, hobbit. You know, <laughs> it's like, it'll be famous and stuff, but Zhek is going to be the thing I'm known for. Zhek is what people will be cosplaying at conventions, you know. <laughs> That's for sure what's going to happen. And it was this <laughs> monumental huge story, this massive epic that I was going to tell over multiple books. And it was soft science fiction. So there's faster than light travel, there was telepathy and all this other stuff. And like, I just, uh, I, I start, got to work on it, you know? And I said, there's so many cool things I can do here. And, and I got about 70,000 words into it after a year of working on it. Uh, 70,000 words in for reference, the Martian is a hundred thousand words. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I realized it was unsalvageably bad. Why? Like, <laughs> uh, there were many problems. First off, um, the story was just crawling along. I had, remember I said, there's this, this amazing epic thing. Well, the end result is there were like 47 things going on all at the same time. And so all of them were moving along very slowly. I was basically, it's almost like I was writing a you know a season of a tv show rather than you know a, a single cohesive book Got it. you know and so there was that and then um so it wasn't moving nearly fast enough the overall and i was still in the first act at seventy thousand words so i was like this is going to be some 900 page tome that nobody wants to read and like it's just the the characters weren't working out they the ideas weren't working out I don't know, just everything felt wrong about it. And so I, I, I told my publisher, I'm like, this is not working. And I don't think I can salvage it into something that works. Can I back burner this and write a completely new book instead? Right. And they said, yes, because they had been reading my chapters and they agreed that it was in trouble. <laughs> like, and so um, I, 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 I back burnered forever basically jack and then that's when i wrote artemis which was uh, it, it's it's the book that everyone forgets i wrote because it's sandwiched between the martian and project hail mary but i'm proud of it and it was a hell of a lot better than artemis uh, than than jack would have been mm -hmm. now jack had jack was a um uh, dumpster fire but there were a few little nuggets there were a few little gems in that dumpster that could be uh salvaged and so some of the elements of jack were things that I stole and put into Project Hail Mary. And one of them was that Jack had this kind of magical fuel called black matter. If you mm. shined light at it, it would mass convert that light into more black matter. Right. And if you ran it through a magnetic field, it would go the opposite direction. It would, it would emit mm. light and consume that mass. So it was a mass conversion fuel. I didn't bother to explain how it worked or anything like that, but that concept was in Jack. And also the, 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 the lovely and talented Ava Strat 
was in Jack originally. She had a different character name, but she was that character of someone who has just who is basically granted unlimited authority and and is a no nonsense person. Mm-hmm. Although in Jack, she was very different, actually. Her personality was different. In Jack, she was a medical doctor and she was literally a sociopath. <laughs> well, like <laughs> she was like literally had no conscience at all and like had to have things explained to her. It's like, why can't you? So, but, um, but she was like the sociopath you root for because she's doing the cutthroat thing. So, Ava Strat is a much more likable version of that. She's not a sociopath. She just, has it a very clear um, a very clear objective in her mind? She's like, what we're doing defines whether or not humanity survives. Mm-hmm. So I will do anything to make yeah. that happen. Right. And you know, sometimes she might feel bad about it, but she's like, I, you know, yeah. there's nothing more important than this. Um, but anyway, so th- these are all elements that I ended up gluing together, and they kind of came together nicely into Project Hail Mary. <laughs> uh, by the way, as viewers and listeners are not already aware, there's going to be huge spoilers for Project Hail Mary and The Martian, yeah. but you're probably aware of it. Uh, but uh, it's a fantastic Okay, so the probably there are amazing, many amazing parts of the book, but let's maybe go one by one. The first one is, uh, you know, between Ryland and quote-unquote Rocky. Um, and the the friendship side, but also the language um, and the musical nature of it. So where did that come from? Talk to us, so the mechanics of it. Sure. You know, what's funny is like, I right from the start, I wanted Rocky to be likable. Like I wanted him to be a character you like. He's the, I'm going to get all fancy now. He's the deuteragonist of the story, right? <laughs> the second most important character. Right. That's, you know. Robin is the deuteragonist in Batman, right? Right. <laughs> you know, right. The, uh, right. Um, that sort of thing. But um, so I definitely wanted him to be likable, but I had no idea how much readers were going to love Rocky. Like I get, I get emails all the time, people saying like, hey, uh, I really liked Project Hail Mary. It's a great story. I would die for Rocky. You know, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Aww. Or maybe sacrifice, potentially sacrifice the entire human race for Rocky. I would, I would sacrifice the entire human race for Rocky. We're, we're, we're a lost cause, but Rocky is worth it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, funny side note is MGM is, is the company that bought the rights to yeah. Project Hail Mary, and they own the rights to Rocky, the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> which they said, like, there's no correlation between those two, but Mike, uh, uh, Mike DeLuca, who was at the time in charge of MGM, uh, when they bought the rights, said like, "There's a, some kind of like kismet there." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, the language of Rocky. Well, I need to go back a few steps. I I wanted my alien to be alien. I didn't want it to just be some blue-skinned woman who wanted to learn more about this Earth thing you call lovemaking, right? I wanted it to be <laughs> more of a like I wanted to be a real alien. And one thing I said, like, absolutely, I want them to have completely incompatible environments, like. Ryland will die in Rocky's environment. Rocky will die in Ryland's environment. Mm-hmm. They they can't. It's it's just. I mean, Jesus. If you pick, yeah. I mean, if if you pick like a like a Himalayan mountain goat and a camel, there's nowhere you can put both of those where they will survive, <laughs> right? right? And that's on the same damn planet. So t- a completely different biosphere evolving, you know, separately is not going to be compatible. So I started out by saying, all right. I'm going to start with the planet. I'm going to start not with biology, but with geology. Uh, I had to pick somewhere to be Rocky's homeworld. And so I chose the star Fordy Eridani, uh, 
Um, and which is a I real, picked, which by the way, it's a real star and a real, real exoplanet. And a real exoplanet. Yeah. Right. His homeworld is in the in our real universe. It's called Forty Eridani, capital A, lowercase b. Right. Um, because that's the nomenclature mm. for planets and stuff like that. So, mm. Eridani, it's, the Eridani system itself is actually a trinary system. Mm. There are three stars. Right. There's one big ass star called Capital A, and then there's Capital B and Capital C. One of them is like a brown dwarf. That's like that from from uh, from the planet's point of view around 40 Eridani A. It may as well be just a one starred system. But there mm. are two other stars that are like one of them's way out there and really dim. Another one's a little closer, but it's a brown dwarf, and it's like can't even tell mm -hmm. um anyway so the first planet in that system is you know 40 eridani ab whatever mm -hmm. so i decided that's going to be um rocky's home world so i started from there and i said all right i want this planet to have life what do we know about the planet i know we know everything about 40 eridani how much light it emits what bandwidths you know how old it is as a star all that stuff like that it's a solar analog it's a star that's very similar to our own sun Okay, that's cool. Um, the planet is extremely close. It's closer to its star than Mercury is to ours. Okay, it has an orbit, uh, arid, as I named the planet, has an orbit of 46 days. That's all mm -hmm. it takes. Mm -hmm. and, that's what we, and we know that, and we know that it's about eight times the mass of Earth. Okay, okay. so that's kind of all we know about it. And so that means I say like, all right, so I start with that, and anything that's not known, I get to make up. Uh, for reasons that we learn much later in the book, I wanted it to be a water-based biosphere. Mm -hmm. So you, you, it does, you do need to have liquid water. And I'm like, well, a planet that that's close, it's that close to a star, how does it have liquid water? And I'm like, the only way to have really, really, really hot liquid water is to have really, really, really high atmospheric pressure. Mm. Okay, fine. It's a really, really high atmospheric pressure. All right, so we've learned something. Then what else? Well, to have a big, thick-ass atmosphere that close to a star, you need to have a really strong magnetic field. Otherwise, the star will just sandblast the atmosphere right off of you like it did to Mars. Okay, so I'm like, okay, well, the way you get a really strong magnetic field is by spinning quickly. Mm -hmm. The faster you spin, uh, uh, the more magnetic field you have, and you need a liquid metal core. Okay, so now I know Arid has a very short day. It spins really fast, so mm -hmm. I decided... You know, it takes about six hours to do one rotation. So bit by bit, the environment that the species has to evolve in is starting to become clear, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, okay, it has a really, really thick atmosphere. Um, sunlight probably won't be able to get to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I decided, okay, so their atmosphere acts kind of like an ocean. There's life that lives up in the upper atmosphere that you know, absorbs sunlight, it's like photosynthesizes. And then there's life below that that eats that life, then life below that that eats that life. So it's kind of like algae and krill and small fish and, you know, all the way down to eventually get whales, you know, I mean. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that Rocky's species, the Iridians, live on the surface and they're the apex predator of the planet. And of course, the smart, they, they developed intelligence. And so then I'm starting to, that's how I get things like, okay, Rocky's species would not need vision because mm. there's no light where they are. They need some other form of establishing what their environment is like. And so I decided they use echolocation. And so they're very good at sound related things. 
Um, also, I decided when there's a lot of gravity, it's probably better to be squat and flat rather than tall. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I decided, you know, and a lot of it was just me taking liberties. I'm like, oh, I want a rock looking spider thingy, you know, when all of the predators and prey on the surface use echolocation, having a rocky carapace makes you look like a rock. Mm-hmm. It makes you sound like a rock, you know, so you, you reflect sound in the same way as a rock. So that's camouflage. It's audio-based camouflage. And that's important if you're going to be a predator. And anyway, and I worked out their whole biology. I went way down the rabbit hole. Only about like 5% of the biology I worked out for how iridians work is actually in the book. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I think it's actually really powerful because actually, I think that actually gives so much substance and weight because you can tell, I think when an author has put in the work and has flushed it out, it really shows on the, the pages. Um, what about the, the, the way they interact? Because these scenes have been done before. For example, Arrival with Ted Chiang has a different sure. version of this with the, uh, uh, yeah, and obviously done in the movie. Um, uh, but you, You'd have enter, you invent an entirely different system of how they establish first contact and communication. So where did the language come from? Yeah, um, well, basically, I, you know, if you, how do I put it? Uh, as a science fiction author, my shtick is to take something that has been done a billion times and just do it my way, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> a guy stranded on a planet, that's not new. You know, a first contact story, that's not new, but I'm just doing it my way. And one thing I decided was I, I, I just continued with my with my ideas on, on Rocky's biology, on Iridian biology. I was like, okay, how do they communicate? Like, they're an intelligent species, so they have to be able to collaborate, work together, and, like, pass knowledge forward. They need to have a language. Mm-hmm. What is it? Do they touch each other? Do they tap dance and fart? Like, what? And one thing I decided, uh, that was a uh, Douglas Adams reference. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so, um, one thing I decided was, I said, I earlier decided the whole, how their whole digestive system works, everything like that. Each iridian is actually sort of a self-contained biosphere. They have mm-hmm. both plant-like and animal-like cells. And their body is almost like a biosphere for that stuff. They need to bring in energy in the form of food. So they eat other animals and they bring it in, but they, but then they bring it inside and that just runs the biosphere for a while. They don't need to respirate with their atmosphere. Right. So their body is like a fortress to defend against pathogens and everything like that. So I'm like, all right, well, they don't breathe in and out. So how do they talk? And I said, like, you know, it has evolved many times independently on Earth for a species to communicate with itself via sound. Mm-hmm. You know, make a noise. I mm-hmm. mean, it travels well. It, it goes across in all environments. It's It makes sense why that evolves. So I said, like, okay, so they use sound, which also makes sense because they have incredibly good hearing, mm-hmm. you know, so it makes sense that they would use sound. I'm like, but they can't just, like, spew air out because they don't have lungs. They don't breathe. They do have, like this diaphragm to keep air flowing over basically a radiator. Mm-hmm. But um, so I decided they have like just basically a bladders of air that they squeeze back and forth across internal vocal cords. So I'm like, well, that's not going to sound like, ah, it's going to sound like, you know, like, <laughs> and that's why I say it sounds like whale song because that's what whales are doing. They're not when they're, when they're singing underwater, they're not expelling air mm-hmm. out of their system. Mm-hmm. They're moving it from one part of their body to, to another. another. So it's this kind of... And so I decided, okay, they can make different notes. Yep. But they can't really pronounce words because they, they could just... You know, 
but they don't have the benefit of like our mouths to shape things out. So I'm like, mm. all right. So instead of um, warbling the tone or pitch or anything like that, what they have is five of these because their bodies are mm. very pentagonally symmetrical. They have five of these and they make chords. Mm. And the, and to an Iridian, they all have perfect pitch. So the way they hear is like, for them, you know, middle C is as different from the, you know, the B next to it as orange is different than green to right. us. Like right. you don't, for us as humans, except for a very few people who have perfect pitch, the rest of us, if you give me a note, I, I don't know what note it is. Yeah. If you give me two notes, I can tell you which one's higher, but, but that's it. We can only think of sounds in reference to other sounds, mm -hmm. but for light, you can show me just green light with no other context and I'll be able to tell you it's green. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Iridians are like that with sound anyway. So um, they communicate via chords and stuff like that. So that's why, so again, you ask like, well, why'd you come up with this uh, sound-based language? It goes all the way back to their biology and what makes sense evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. Right. This is great. I, I love how you like from first principles just came up yeah. with, you know, how does this planet work? And, you know, what is gravity like? What is like the inner core look yeah, like? Yeah, right. And two there? and a half Gs or worked out two Gs because the other thing I did was, although we have no idea what the density of the real exoplanet is, I arbitrarily decided to give it the same density as Earth because yeah. I needed it to have a liquid metal core anyway. So it has about the same density as Earth, which makes sense because if it was like a mini gas giant. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be able to survive near the sun, near its star for that long. Either the star would have sucked all the gas, gas off out. of it yep. into the star. Yep. Yeah. Or it would have had all the gas like blown off yeah, that's, by, by solar winds. It's, it's so, so I'm, great. I'm pretty sure it's probably a, sorry, that's what they're called. Rocky planet. Rocky. <laughs> that's what um. they're called. <laughs> a, a planet that's not a gas giant is a rocky planet. Yeah. I also, a rocky planet. I love that the audiobook version actually has the musical notes. Yeah. Uh, they, it's such they a good touch. Nailed it so yeah, well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Ray Porter is the was the narrator. He did a fantastic job, of course. And then, yeah, Audible really put effort into it. Like they went back and forth with me, saying, "Like, ooh, what do you think about, you know, it, well, I, I was the one who had suggested, why don't we play notes at the same time as the thing? Mm -hmm. Actually, I maybe I'm maybe I'm getting a little too full of myself. Maybe I didn't come up with that idea." <laughs> I don't think I'm going to lay claim to that idea because now I'm not sure. Anyway, it was a great idea, whoever came up with it, of just playing the notes in the background and then also having Rocky's voice speaking. And so mm -hmm. then Rocky has this extremely distinct voice because whenever he's speaking, you're also hearing the notes in the background. And yes. it just represents the fact that Ryland has learned the language. Right. Yep. In the book, it's just italics. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you see the notes there, yeah. And I have my ideas for, for the film. I made a suggestion... Um, that like for the uh, musical language, what I want to do is um, do a cipher. I want to take, so take what you're going to say, whatever you want them to say, translate it into Japanese, like real Japanese. Japanese is very convenient because it only has 46 unique syllables. Mm -hmm. Okay. Actually, there's more than that because there's a couple of diphthongs, but really it's like less than 100 unique syllables. Okay. Assign each one of those syllables uh, it, in advance, assign every possible Japanese syllable a, a chord, yep. a set of notes. And then so then translate whatever you want to have Rocky say into Japanese and then play that sequence of chords. And then you will have an internally consistent language. Like a language, yeah. You're basically you basically can analyze a it as, as deep as you want. That's it great. will always make sense. That's and great. it's just Japanese. 
It's like Klingon, I mean, you could do it with another but... <laughs> language, but English, for instance, believe it or not, we have something like over 15,000 unique syllables mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can wow. be said. Uh, bear in mind, strengths, that word, is a single syllable. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like coming up with Klingon or something. It's like you just yeah. have to like oh, yeah. come up with a new well, language. Well, one of the Tolkien languages where Tolkien actually right, did. Right, actually. Uh, I, think fully, actually I don't know whether Klingon is a, I don't know whether Roddenberry actually came up with the entire language, but Tolkien obviously came up with all the original languages. Yeah, uh, Tolkien was all about conlangs. Yeah, right. um, uh, Roddenberry never invented Klingon. Uh, the actual language of Klingon was invented. I don't know who it, people know who, uh, but I just don't. Um, it was looking it, it up. It was really fleshed out by someone <laughs> for the film Star Trek VI. Oh wow! Uh, here we yeah. go. So it was. Uh, I just looked it up. It's uh, uh, Mark Ockrand, uh was invented. It, uh, so he invented it in 1984. Um, and then kind of like flushed out. So there we go. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And it was really put into use in Star Trek VI. So in Star Trek VI, where the, you, the Klingons are speaking Klingon a lot. Yeah. And that it, it is... Uh, I will say... You know, there are, there are something like uh, between 10 and 20 people in the yeah. world who yeah. were raised speaking Klingon natively. What? Oh my God. Uh, That's somebody, like next level. First of all, I'd say this is the first episode where we've gotten into the mechanics of the Klingon language, yeah. you know, which I love. <laughs> yeah. uh, and second is if somebody should do a longitudinal study on those people and their psychological makeup and how did they fare after when they were adults? Did they give them it's an It's in the Wikipedia page for the Klingon language. <laughs> and what happened for all of them is they, as they got a little bit older and started interacting with people other than their parents, they ditched the Klingon and went to their normal language like, yeah yeah if they were in germany they were just speaking german, german. And it just it didn't stick i will language say you need to, yeah. yeah and they just spoke an, some normal language um i will say <laughs> you speaking about um arid and iridian as such and the whole like first principles i i love this whole segment that we just did and that was great we have an almost four-year-old kid a daughter and she is really into space and you know, she's just showing all signs of just being. Did like, you raise her speaking native Klingon? <laughs> no. Uh, she has no honor. No. Yeah. She has no honor. <laughs> you know, by the way, you know, I, I can imagine those native speakers running into Michael Darn everywhere and trying to like yeah. challenge him yeah. to a battle. <laughs> and Captain, I protest. I am not a merry man. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, she, you know, she seems like scientifically oriented, which makes us really happy. Uh, it's very early, but you know, early signs she's of it. Four. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I'll take it, you know. And she, you know, take it, sure. And kind of similar to how you explained um, Arid and the atmosphere and everything. Like, you know, she comes to, you know, a couple nights ago, she's like, we got to build a spaceship. And I'm like, okay, how do you do okay, it? Okay, let's and get she to was work. Like, she's like, we got to go. We got to like be on a spaceship and we got to travel everywhere. And I'm like, okay, how do you do it? She's like, well, we need cardboard. We need silver foil. Um, we need to build a rocket and we need to like make a rocket look like a cone at the top. And she's like got this whole like structure figured out. And mm -hmm. she's like, and then how does it move? And she's like, mama, we got to go to a lab and build a rocket with a cardboard. She's convinced that this is how you make this it. This is how you do it. <laughs> yeah. Our structural engineering chops may need some work. <laughs> but it's great because she's like kind of sort of like seeing movies, TV shows, whatever, books and reverse engineering a bunch of stuff to be like, cardboard that's like stable oh, yeah. obviously yeah oh, yeah. and we got to like build a spaceship and then she was like i want a helmet but i don't want it to be heavy i want this right, to be round 
Yeah. And she's like coming up with this whole thing from her world of like first principles and it's kind of like helmet. wonderful to see. <laughs> I like get her, get her space themed bike helmet. Uh, but, uh, but you know I think maybe you know depending on this theme there I've been getting spent time with like Elon Musk at Twitter and elsewhere and he's obsessed with the idea of you know getting humanity as as many planets as possible. And the Martian is actually very interesting because it actually shows you you know like a couple of decades in the future what is possible. So I am curious right like you know there is often a loop between science fiction an actual science where an audience grows up with sci-fi and they try and make it happen that inspires more sci-fi and you get that how does humanity get off this planet um by basically i firmly believe just reducing the cost of getting mass into low earth orbit mm-hmm. um so what your buddy elon musk is doing right 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 okay. <laughs> aren't you advising him on, on stuff i <laughs> uh, uh, not on the not on the rocket stuff on the 280 on the twitter stuff on the 280 right? character stuff not the getting stuff into space on part. the 280 <laughs> character stuff <laughs> different problem different pro- yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, less uh, less but, structural um, engineering but yeah no of of reducing the price of getting mass to lower earth orbit by uh, in my my whole book artemis also known as andy weir's other book um <laughs> is based on the premise of you know it takes place in the 2080s and the price to low earth orbit has been driven down far enough that like um you, once you get the price to low earth orbit down that also means you're going to get the price to lunar translunar injection down and all that and i said this exists now in an economic system where a middle class person can can save up their money or maybe even get a loan to have a once in a lifetime like trip to the moon Mm. like so it costs the equivalent of what in today's money would be like about a hundred thousand bucks mm-hmm. you know you could do that if you could go spend a week on the moon for a hundred thousand dollars a lot of people would do that you'd right. be limited by supply not by demand right right, right. and so mm-hmm. it, it would become a profitable business venture and that's what Artemis is it's a city on the moon where they're right next to the Apollo 11 landing site so it's a tourist destination well and so what about maybe more futuristic for example in project hail mary you have the astrophages which you talked about is well, that would be nice if we had that we'd be all over the solar system like <laughs> You know, Arthur C. Clarke was always interested in sort of inertial drives. That is kind of a consistent theme in all the Arthur C. Clarke work, starting with like, you know, Rendezvous with Rama, a bunch of others. So, so if we had to, okay, if you had to kind of put on a more sci-fi hat of things which could actually maybe become real and maybe get our, you know, maybe we don't get dilithium crystals and get into War Factor 9. The only way I know I'm even people into War Factor 10, I was like, 10 is a limit, people. You can't get to 10. Um, yeah, but what... Theoretical <laughs> limit. Theoretical limit. Uh, uh, what do you, th- what... could propel us into space. Honestly, I think in the short term it's just still going to have to continue being propellants. I mean, mm-hmm. in the longer term, we're I I feel like we're closer to the technology for a space elevator than a lot of people think. Um, people think of space as really far away, but what what space it, it isn't that it's far away, it's just that it's really fast, right? I mean, <laughs> the, I mean, Space is just a hundred kilometers that way. That's it. I mean, um, so the problem is, if you want to stay there, you've got to be going seventy-eight hundred kilometers. I'm oh, sorry, seventy-eight hundred meters per second that way, if you want to stay up there, mm-hmm. right? So, a space elevator is just basically, you know, I'm sure you guys know what it is, but it's like it's basically a string with a counterweight sticking off of Earth, such that the centripetal force of that 
weight is held out by Earth's mm -hmm. rotation. Right. Then you can basically take an elevator up and down that string. And you're like, well, wait a minute. How did how did you acquire all that velocity? Where'd the energy come from? You're actually robbing it from Earth's inertia. But Earth is a planet. Planets are big. Earth has a lot of rotational inertia. It'll be fine. And so um, the problem with the space elevator is if you do all the math, you need a very strong material. You can't just use more of a material if you say like, oh, I want a steel cable. Well, it'll break because of the forces involved. Oh, we'll do two, two steel cables. Well, the forces involved are caused by the density of that steel cable. So by making two steel cables, you've now doubled the mass that they have to hold right. and doubled the surface area. So it still breaks at the mm -hmm. same at the yeah. same amount. So you, it's not enough to just use more of a strong material. You need to invent new, stronger materials. But as we get closer and closer to inventing those materials, if we get to a point where we can mass produce a material with a high enough tensile strength, then we could construct a space elevator. By the way, have you seen Foundation on Apple TV in the first? Yeah, you should. Because, I didn't watch it. Uh, well, uh, well, obviously, the, you know, the, the book is legendary, but the, on the first episode, it's not really a spoiler. It's probably the best depiction of a space elevator on screen mm. I've ever seen. So mm. highly, highly, the pilot is uh, highly recommended. Now, okay. the other theme I want to ask you about is uh, in Chichen Loon, three-body problem, uh, there's a theory of the dark forest, um, mm. which is, uh, which, yeah. I, which I think you know what I'm going to get to, but basically yeah. the super simple version. So maybe you want to quickly explain what the dark forest problem is and the oh, problem. Yeah, the, the dark concept. forest problem is that like, um, due to the limitations of the speed of light, we can't rapidly, we, we cannot have a back and forth communication with an alien species with any, re, in any reasonable amount of time. Uh, the problem is that like, um, e even even if there were aliens at Alpha Centauri, which is the case in three body problem, mm -hmm. the the Trisolarians, as they are called, because there's they have three, three stars, stars. Um, that's four years for light to make a one way journey, and then four years for it to make it back. So communicating at all makes it kind of it makes it functionally impossible to kind of find out what the other people are up to, and it puts both species in a position where you say. My safest bet is genocide. Like, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what they're planning, but I do know that my species will be fine if they're dead. And mm -hmm. I don't, and I can't take a chance on anything else. Now, that's that's the philosophy that the aliens use in um, in the three body problem. I I don't write very dark stuff. Like, I, <laughs> I tend to write pretty kind of like lighthearted stuff. And so first off, in this uh, first contact scenario, it wasn't some formal thing. It was like two nerds run into each other while trying to solve the same problem. Yeah. Uh, they have a common problem. Second off, um, I don't think there's any reason to distrust alien life. I don't think we've ever encountered any. But um, it's one of those things where it's like, why fight over resources when you currently have an infinite amount of them. So if you have the ab ability to travel to another star system, what does that one planet have that you can't just get somewhere else? Right. You know, so that that's one of my things that I've always had a problem with in uh, like alien invasion science fiction, which I love, by the mm -hmm. way, love alien invasions, can't get enough of them. <laughs> but it's like, why do, in fact, that's, that's what Jek was about. Jek was about aliens invading Earth. But again, I, I got to be me. And I'm like, why? 
you know, like why, like when I wrote, wrote Artemis, I started with why, why is there a city on the moon? Because all the answers that most science fiction stories have fall flat for me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, um, Earth is overpopulated. I'm like, okay, did they colonize the ocean floor? Did they colonize Antarctica? Because those are like a lot easier than colonizing the moon. Mm. It's like, oh, well, Earth got destroyed by environmental problems. I'm like, okay, couldn't you just, whatever you built on the moon, just build it on Earth. It's got its own <laughs> internal atmosphere, right? I mean, right, right. so why, why, why did you go somewhere else? You, if you're going to build a hermetically sealed environment, you can just do that on Earth. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, these people are persecuted. They're a persecuted minority who went to the moon. I'm like, if you can afford to build a goddamn city on the moon, you are not persecuted. Yeah. All right. Or, and no, so need to go, no need to go after the blue people on Pandora. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and so I just, I, I finally said, oh, well, the only reason anybody would build a city anywhere is for business. And so they can, they can make money. And so they, the tourism industry is the answer for that. Now, by the same token, I've always thought, like, why would aliens invade Earth? And if you look at all the reasons in all the stories and movies on why aliens invade Earth, they all kind of fall flat to me. Like, hmm. like uh, Independence Day, they, the aliens in that, are their, their native environment is pretty much the same as Earth. They're comfortable in our environment. And, all, and their computers are susceptible to our viruses. And their computers are susceptible to our hacks, but whatever. Um, they're comfortable in their environment. So what they do is they go, they're like locusts. They go from planet to planet that's Earth-like and like take it, use up, consume the natural resources and then move on. I'm like, okay, what resources are on Earth that you can't just get from a planet that won't, that doesn't have a bunch of people with guns? Right. You know? Like, what do you need? (laughs) Name an element. Mm -hmm. Name anything you're looking for. Mm -hmm. What do you want? You want water? Go to Europa. It's free. No one will fight you there. Like, you you know, know, by the way, I think this is actually a problem which uh, Douglas Adams solved, which is, yeah, we don't want to take over the earth. It's just like a random bureaucratic act and you just happen to be in the way, which I find a lot more believable. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then also there were the cricket warriors in the third book. Um, and they were more of the dark forest uh, approach. Yeah. They were the cricket warriors in the in the so long and thanks for all the fish. fish yeah. Were like, oh, other life forms exist. It's all gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, so that, but the jokes aside, you know, like I grew up idolizing Carl Sagan, right? Contact. Uh, you know, the, the 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 metal plate which the Klingons wind up shooting. Uh, you know, on Voyager. All of that was my <laughs> all of that was my childhood. In right. Star Trek Five. <laughs> that's when that happens is in star trek 5 oh yeah so that tells me you've watched star trek 5 recently <laughs> i i i watch a lot of trek i watch uh i i watch a lot of trek in my lifetime but uh, i i have a trek piece of person which i would trek which i'll tell you off air later uh about our son but uh the uh but the point is like i grew up on that stuff right but uh-huh. the three-body problem the trilogy made me actually wonder hey do we know how the other people on the other side will react to this because you're putting out these signals saying like hey here we are out here um and in contact of course famously they beam back the the nazi broadcast for example but right. the three-body problem for the first time we were like hey we don't know anything about how the the life forms on the other side will interpret react act to this and maybe mm-hmm. we should hold off it may be a little bit more sympathetic to the idea than what i was before yeah um, I mean, that's the idea of the three-body problem. And in fact, as the books go on, the way that humans get revenge on the Trisolarians mm-hmm. is by broadcasting the Trisolarians' home planet location 
out into space mm -hmm. and then some other species goes and eradicates them <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's like fuck you ah, sorry if okay. you oh yeah well if you <laughs> okay um i want to talk about writing a little bit so i sort of try and write thrillers on the side and they're awful and terrible uh each in their own way and brandon sanderson talks about two kinds of writers there are the architects who outline every single thing they have everything in place before they put a word to paper and then what he calls the gardeners. Like, for example, uh, George R. R. Martin is a famous gardener. He's like, yeah. let me write these characters and see where they develop and where they go. I am curious, yeah. two questions. One, which, and they're not binary, there's kind of a spectrum. Which camp yeah. do you find yourself falling into? And two, for beginning writers, people who want to be a writer, people who want to be you, what advice do you have for them on the spectrum? Well, so where I am is somewhere in the middle, I think. I mean, I'm, I, I generally have in mind major turning points of the plot and then I kind of meander from one to the other. And sometimes in my writing, I'll be like, oh, over here, this would be way more interesting. And I'll restructure parts of the plot. Um, when I started writing The Martian, I, in, I, my original plan was it was just going to be just Mark on Mars, the whole book. It's just his log entries. And then he was going to make it all on his own to the Ares 4 landing site, and he was going to be there when they landed, and they were going to be somewhat surprised, right? So I fall somewhere in the middle. I generally have the major plot points, like I told you about the Martian, mm -hmm. um, how, um, yeah, uh, all that. But generally, I have the idea. So for Project Hail Mary, for instance, I knew how it was going to start. I knew some of the main plot points, and I knew what the last scene was going to be. Mm. I, I knew that final scene is where we were going. And so that was kind of cool. I, and I loved that concept for a final scene so much that I was wow. like, okay, definitely we're going to work toward that. I did not um, expect that. Like, I did not expect that final scene that kind of, you know, caught me totally off guard. And I think you and I, we chatted a bunch about the ending. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think we were like, was that the best ending we could do? And we thought about it and we we're like, actually, it's very satisfying. Like, yeah. it felt very well rounded and yeah. satisfying. It's just, uh, it gives him the uh, the ending that he, he, he gets to be a teacher. Yes. yes. And he gets to hang out with his best friend. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like it's good. You know, I would say the part of the book, huge spoiler, the part of the book which hugely surprised me was when he chooses to go save Rocky rather and basically put the whole human race at risk, right? Which which uh, well, which achieves, not, which not achieves really. well, not necessarily, but which achieves a bunch of things, I think. You know, one, obviously, you get the culmination of the friendship, but also it validates, uh, you know, Eva's decision, which yeah. uh, and makes her a good person, which I think so it kind of solves so many things at the same time. Yeah. Um, I wanted to have his character arc. Um, yeah. I, I consider my biggest weakness as a writer to be character depth and complexity. Um, everybody loves Mark Watney, but nobody would call him a literary character. Right. He, I mean, he is a literary character in that he's a fictional character that exists in a book, but he doesn't have depth or complexity. He has no arc. Um, at the end of the book, his personality is exactly the same as it was at the beginning. He, he didn't undergo any change of opinion or ideology. He, he's not a different person than he was at the start. Mm -hmm. um, he has no depth. Um, all you know about him after reading the entire book is that he's smart, kind of sarcastic and didn't want to die. I mean, the same can be said about me. He's you, by the way. He, <laughs> All three of those things. <laughs> I, I would say, but Mark Watney, if you read the book, 
and we got to watch our video he's basically you yeah, right I like mean, this yeah, re- like watching your interviews on youtube we're like you're basically mark watney like that's he's just me. you yeah, yeah yeah he's just pure he's just mark <laughs> watney is just purely me and then believe it or not jazz bashara in, in artemis is also just me so huh. i've considered myself uh, so i've always considered myself weak on characters and depth and complexity so when i was writing artemis i said like all right i want a character with an arc i want i want her to to grow as a person and realize she's made some mistakes and become a better person i want her to be flawed i don't want her to be perfect and stuff like that i'm like you know who's flawed me i'm flawed <laughs> and so basically i i based her on kind of my personality quirks that i had when i was in my 20s mm-hmm. and so a lot of people say like wait the main character is like a 26 year old saudi woman and you're like a 50 year old white dude from america how can you say that that's a self insertion character no she really is she i when i was in my early and mid 20s i was like theoretically smart yet consistently made bad life decisions right i was always looking for an easy way to do something rather than just putting out the effort and that would always cause me more problem i i was my own worst enemy right <laughs> and so i put all that into jazz and then the end result was she's not a very likable character mm. people uh, whereas mark watney is the idealized version of me he's all the he's all the aspects of my personality that i like and none of my flaws mm. it turns out the idealized me is much more likable than the real me so <laughs> now for ryland i wanted to try to push myself again i said like okay flaws are good but jazz was so flawed it drove some readers away they found her to be like annoying and difficult to root for because she was so self-destructive mm-hmm. so i'm like let's dial it back let's make the flaws a little more less self-destructive mm-hmm. and more like you know ryland has like cowardice issues and 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 also one of ryland's main flaws is he's naive you mm-hmm. know um and i said also this was the first time for project hail mary it was the first time i created a character that i said like okay he's not just going to be based on me yeah he's a bit of a smart ass i'm a smart ass all my characters are smart asses but i wanted to make a character that has his own personality that is not based on mine and it's distinct i love it and i think by the way i think you can see you know how much your progress as a writer across the three books um and phm okay. <laughs> okay i'm going to ask you a little bit about writing influences in other people in sci-fi who i think you're fans of um maybe kind of deconstruct for us like what makes this person special and maybe start with the og asimov what makes him special okay. how how did he have an influence on you um well asimov is my favorite author first off so we're starting right at right at the top for me um one thing that asimov would do is uh, or here's the thing that asimov did that i do so i assume i ripped it off from him although i never really consciously meant to i just said this is how i write mainly because i'm so heavily influenced by asimov asimov like to take like to create a system mm-hmm. like here's a system of rules for my universe and then let's just see where that goes mm-hmm. so for me for like for instance in project hail mary i created astrophage all right so here's how this little microbe works let's see where that goes and that mm. goes a lot into a lot of interesting places for asimov he just made the three laws of robotics so right. where's that go right. and so i robot which is my favorite book i mean you get on any given day i'll have a different favorite book but right. my go to answer when people ask me that is i robot it's a bunch of short stories on just all the directions mm. 
that you can end up going with these simple rules mm -hmm. and all the really interesting things that can happen as a result of these very straightforward, simple rules. Right. So that's one thing I love to do is say like, here are the rules of the, of the world I've created. Now, now what, where, where do we go from there? Um, so that's one thing I absolutely love about Asimov. Um, yeah. And he just made multiple different like series that were you know amazing uh, i would say how many tech companies i can't there are so many tech companies that have been inspired by the idea of psychohistory right um, <laughs> sure uh, yeah. uh, the, the idea of psychohistory has inspired obviously uh, and so the foundation and hari selden i mean there are so many different franchises from asimov which ultimately right. is so prolific okay next writer uh or the c clock who was actually my childhood og right. idol Our going sure. up yeah. growing up love clark um Clark was really cool because um, he uh, he was a uh, of my uh, I have my holy trinity Clark Asimov and Einstein uh, Einstein Heinlein <laughs> I also <laughs> like Einstein but for different reasons <laughs> uh, Clark uh, Asimov Clark and Heinlein um, but anyway uh, Clark is part of my holy trinity and of them he is the one that's closest to being the hard science fiction author mm. um, his science fiction tended to be very um, scientifically accurate not all the time but pretty good mm -hmm. my favorite book of his is rendezvous with rama yep. and yep. that is 100 percent hard science fiction like do everything, everything in, in threes physically possible. i i i couldn't sleep for a week because of the last sentence that ramans do everything everything in threes i remember that he woke he wakes up wait a minute ramans do everything in threes <laughs> and i thought oh cool i'll yeah. read i'll read the next book <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Oh my goodness! I was very. I I, I DNF'd the sequel. I I couldn't. Even... I could not. I I I don't remember anything outside of the first book. That's how it'll be. Yeah, I mean, the first book is fantastic, and then the second book. I'm. I I think it was a collaboration, right? I'm not sure he wrote it. I think. Oh no, he. Some of the other collaborations were very good. He worked with Stephen Baxter, I think, on a bunch of other books, which were really good. But I don't think the I, drama, drama books. I don't know who wrote it. We'll see. I'm sorry if you're listening, but they were the sequels were not as good. Yeah, the sequels weren't as good, and I was just very disappointed. But um, yeah, but the first one was fantastic. Let's see. I mean. Believe it or not, I've never been that huge a fan of 2001 hmm. or, or the or the series. I get it, mm -hmm. and it, I, and I love the hard sci-fi aspect of it because uh, we learn in the third book um, that you know the monoliths are basically there to monitor humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of king monolith that's out. I want to say out like around the orbit of Pluto oh, yeah. or something like that that's monitoring it. And the aliens left these monoliths behind. Um, and they have decision-making capability because the aliens are also limited by the speed of light as communication. So they have to leave thinking machines behind to do what they think is best. And, and, so, and I thought that was a really interesting concept is that like, it's like, we can't really just exercise our will over an interstellar region. Mm -hmm. We have to take our will and put it into a machine that can do the thinking for us mm -hmm. and then leave it there to make decisions as needed. Uh, and hopefully make decisions that we would want. You know, I had a well, odd thing because I read 3001, which is the third, actually 2061 is third book. So I think I, I read 3001, the fourth book first. Okay. Um, and so oh. it actually, it's actually a very good book. It's actually a very good book because it actually wraps up the whole storylines with the Sentinels and all that. Um, and then it, because the first book is kind of hard because, you know, the movie's version is so good. With, it, oh my God, it's full of stars and yada, yada. But yeah. the book is actually hard to read. Okay. I'm going to get to a contemporary person, um, Blake Crouch. Okay. Uh, love Blake. What about him? Uh, I mean, 
Uh, he just writes entertaining sci-fi. I, I, it's difficult to put into words. I, I've loved pretty much everything he's written. I especially like Recursion. I'm a sucker for time travel. Yes. Um, and uh, he, he, he does things his own way, and he always has kind of a unique twist on it. So, again, he, he's kind of like me, or maybe I'm kind of like him, uh, in, in a way that, like, the, if, you, if you just hear the elevator pitch for one of his books, you'll or if you just hear what the what the core mechanic or concept is, you're like, oh, a thousand other books do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they don't do it his way. Right. Okay, he wrote a time travel book, but his time travel works his way. It's got its own unique twist on it. Right. And a Parallel Dimensions book, like Dark Matter, it's like, yeah, but he does it his way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not Sliders, and his time travel book is not Back to the Future. It's like every, everything. And, and so I really like to see a fresh take on a on well trodden terrain, which is what I I also like to do. So I just read so, uh, I just read upgrade for example, one of his upgrade is latest yeah. work, and it could be a superhero book. It's been like yeah. the version to it's done it's done in his way, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's the you know, yeah, it, it's the whatever Captain America basically concept of like oh you became you know superhuman due to science, and, but it needs to you know. Blake gonna crouch. I love it. You know? <laughs> I love it. Um, Andy, what's next for you? Uh, uh, after I, I've been on a bit of a hiatus since Project Hail Mary because my wife and I had a baby. Um, he's 18 months old now and starting to get a little bit more manageable. I'm getting back to writing. I'm working on my next book now. I'm only at the very beginning. Um, and I don't know if it's going to stick. So I'm not really talking about it. Mm-hmm. I learned a hard lesson on Jack that yeah. like I can get quite a ways into a book and then realize it sucks. So... This one, though, I spent months doing the science to establish the rules of my universe here. Um, there's, there's, yeah. And then now that I've got that all worked out, I, I was able to, I, how do I put it? I had a plot in mind already, but I needed to work out the science and I needed to understand how the science works before I could square that with the plot. Now I finally got the science done uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I also have a couple of other ideas for books that I might, my, generally what I'll do is if I like the idea for a book, I'll write chapter one, just chapter one, see how it feels. Mm-hmm. And then my original plan on this was I'll just write chapter one of this and I'll write chapter one of another idea I have and chapter one of a third idea and see what feels good. Mm-hmm. But this is feeling pretty good. So I think it might stick. I might just keep going on this, but not sure. I love that. Um, no, we ask all of our guests this, which is, let's say, you know, several decades in the future, or maybe infinite, if we all achieved the singularity, uh, you know, and you're looking back upon this, what would you want your legacy to be? What would be a great Joseph Campbellian three-act satisfying structure to the story of Andy Ware? You know, I mean, I've kind of accomplished all that I wanted. I, nice. I, 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 I I like, uh, I love being able to write books. I'd like it if more of them got made into movies because I like, I mean, I love seeing films, uh, watching The Martian. I was just like, wow, I came up with this crap. Now it's on a screen. That's amazing. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, I don't, I don't really imagine having much of a legacy other than like Andy Weir. He entertained people, I guess, you know, he wrote books that are still fun to read today, you yeah. know? Well, let me give you an interesting observation of that. You know, I, I, Elon Musk likes to say the most entertaining outcome is uh, the most likely outcome. And, uh, you, you know, one of the, you know, 
this whole idea of like we might be in a simulation a nick postrum simulation hypothesis and one of the theories is the simulation that gets to live and not get shut down in some big pc in the sky is the one that's most entertaining so you providing entertainment <laughs> might have some real value for the human race and our, our universe well maybe we just haven't been shut down yet maybe so uh but andy this was such a delight you have inspired us entertained us made us laugh and uh and made us kind of like you know think what is possible in the way all good sci-fi does and you're such such a blast to have a conversation with this was amazing oh, thanks this thanks was so such much. a blast for us i i also we don't often we get a lot of people who are nerdy but we don't often get to nerd out live on the show because you know usually we talk about what they like you know their company that they founded or something of that sort and here you are Tell a nerd. me more about the exciting world of Manila folders, which you <laughs> manufacture in nine countries. Star Trek Six does not come up often. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we we don't talk about Klingon, and we don't talk about you know just nerd being the actual product, not as a byproduct as such. So this was such a blast. <laughs> this was such us. a blast. Andy, we should do this again. But thank you. We'll have links to all of your stuff, and people go watch Martian and go buy Project Hail Mary. This is amazing, Andy. This is a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.